Well, as I've already mentioned, this is our preparatory service for the Lord's Supper. And uh, so we return to the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. If you could turn there to the second chapter as we continue along in this book, we will consider verses uh, 1 through 5. Uh, yes, 1 through 5 this afternoon. And uh, uh, use this as a text to help prepare our hearts to meet with Jesus next week. Song of Songs, chapter 2. Please give your attention now, once again, to the reading of God's holy word. These are the very words of God. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come to the preached word, Father. And as we come to the preached word, we pray that you would have us, each of us, sit down under the shadow of Christ with great delight, that his fruit would be sweet to our taste as we hear Christ preach to us through the, uh, the preaching of the word. In the gospel, Father, cause the sweetness of the gospel to come forth now in the preaching. And so we pray that your minister would have the spirit of the Lord that the Spirit of God, that Holy Spirit that we heard of this morning, He would be poured out, that He would shed into our hearts the love of God, the love of Christ, and we would be filled with it now. So send Your Spirit to all those who will hear, that all of us would see our great Lord Jesus Christ. O Father, would You show us Jesus in the preaching of the Word, He that is altogether lovely. We ask this for His sake. Amen. Well, I say that the more that I grow in the faith, the more richness, the more pertinence that I find in the greatest commandment of all. Boys and girls, what's the greatest commandment? Thou shalt love, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest commandment the Lord said. The greatest commandment of all, could you imagine it, is this, to be in love with God. That is the greatest commandment that the lawgiver has given us. And in this text, we find the greatest commandment, which is to be lovesick for Jesus Christ our Lord. The reason that this is so necessary as we come to the Lord's Supper, and really necessary for us in every day of our life, is that if our affections... If our affections, right, because we know the law is spiritual and it begins in the affections of the heart. If our affections are stayed upon him, if our desires are upon Jesus, we would rejoice in the God of our salvation. We would pant after communion with him day by day over all others. We would put away idolatry because we desire communion with him. We would put away what the Bible calls are the fleeting pleasures of sin for deep and rich love for Christ, we would put away the world, we would pursue holiness and righteousness, and whenever, whenever the Lord gives these piercing words, thou hast left thy first love, 
We would be cut to the heart as we saw in Acts chapter 2 this morning. And as we prepare for the supper then, we are to grow in our desires, to grow in our desires for Jesus Christ above all else. Our text says that if we would do so, we would desire His ordinances, we would desire communion with Him. And if you are, in a sense, lovesick for Christ, really this is the, 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 the beauty of the greatest commandment, whatever ails you spiritually will be dealt with. If you are lovesick for Christ. Remember what it was for Paul, right? When, when you see, and, and maybe he uses slightly different terms, but the expression is the same. When he says that all else was dung compared to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. This is what love for Christ does. Everything else is nothing. And so when we come to the Lord's Supper, we are to come with fervent desire for the Lord. We are to desire communion with God. That's what it is, isn't it? Communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we come with no love? How can we come when we have any other love above Him? When we come to the supper, we can't. And so we are to pant for Him. Why? Because the table itself is a preview of what? The wedding supper of the Lamb. It is a preview of our wedding day, Bride of Christ. We have to come with love for Him, lovesick for Him, desiring, as the Bible says, to taste and see that the Lord is good. So our theme is to prepare for the Lord's Supper by growing lovesick for Christ. We'll consider that under two heads this afternoon. First is to desire His person, and second is to desire His fruit. First, to desire His person. Well, it's been about three months since we've been in the Song of Songs. And so let's refresh our understanding and how we treat the song here. You know, the book is often misunderstood. It's often misunderstood, thinking of it as kind of a manual for lovers. Um, But at best, and I think this is the problem, and even people who try to use it this way find a lot of difficulties. At best, it's a bit strange in that way. And that's why usually we'll pluck a verse or two out of it, right? Uh, But we'll ignore most of it because we don't understand how could this have any bearing on me. First of all, husbands ask, how can I, an ordinary man compared to the great figure in this book, right, who is altogether lovely, who is a king, who is regal and magnificent, and how many brides tell their husband, I am black but comely, right, who say to their husbands, I am distressed in the sun of the world. No, these two parties show something greater is here in this book. The song is, and I'm not going to defend that, we can go back to the first sermon on this, but I'll just explain how we treat it here, which is the song is foremost, foremost, an allegory for the love of Christ for his church. Because you think of these two figures here, right? Solomon, who is typological in the Shulamite, Solomon, the giver of peace, the Shulamite, the receiver of peace. That's what these names mean. We find in the the, the bridegroom here, Jesus Christ, who is altogether lovely. There's only one man that has ever had that description. And the church here, right, when we look at what the church is, the church is truly black, that is, darkened, darkened by her sins, but comely, because Jesus Christ has died for her. This is not something novel. The Bible itself pictures marriage, uh, shows marriage to be a picture of Christ's love for the church. In Ephesians 5, Paul speaks of marriage like this. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and the two, they too, shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. See, ultimately, 
Whenever we see the great mystery of marriage unfolded in this text, we find it unfolded by Christ's love for his bride. You know, this is the mystery of marriage that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 5, that God would take on flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone, to be wed to us. His his bride, right? We are his bride. That's what marriage ultimately signified. And as this song is Solomon's, right? This song of songs, that's what it's called in verse 1, chapter 1, ultimately relates us to the marriage of the king of kings. What did he say? One greater than Solomon is here. That is the figure here in this book. Why is it even called the Song of Songs in its first verse? That's a superlative. It means the greatest song of all, doesn't it? Jesus is King of Kings. This is the Song of Songs. Why? Not because it concerns the marriage of King Solomon, but because it is an allegory for the marriage of King Jesus to his bride, the church. And because, right, Because people don't understand that, you might have a season of life or even maybe you have the gift of singleness and you will ignore this book. You'll ignore this book. And you will find that your Bible, for several of you, you have thought all these days has 65 books instead of 66. You might say, I'm single or I'm divorced or I'm widowed. God gave me 65 books, I guess. Or they say, right, and you deal with this a lot, my marriage is a disaster. And when I read this book, I see something I cannot have. I cannot see how I can have this. And so, so many weep over a Bible that seems to only have 65 books to them, as this one causes pain. But beloved, what does the Bible say? Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And this book, believer, is a book designed to wipe away your tears no matter your situation in life, to show in Christ you have the love of loves, the love of the King of Kings, a King that adores believers, and believers are to adore Him in return. That's how we will handle the book, and that's how we have so far, and that is touched on in earlier sermons, so I'll leave that there. So with that introduction, our goal tonight is to grow in this longing for Jesus Christ, So as in the fifth verse, we might say, I am sick of love. I am lovesick. That's what you ought to be for your God. Lovesick. Lovesick for your God. And lovesick for Jesus Christ. You know, to grow lovesick for Jesus Christ is the very best way to keep that greatest commandment of all. That commandment that summarizes all the law of God. To grow lovesick for Jesus Christ will cause us to go where he feeds us. On himself. To grow lovesick for Jesus Christ will cause you to hate your sin and hate the world as you grow in love for the Savior. So that when the world and sin entice you to spiritual whoredom, right? If you are lovesick for Christ, you would say in your heart, What is the, this ugly sin compared to my beloved who is altogether lovely? You say, as Joseph did, right? How can I sin and do this great evil against the God that I love? That's what lovesickness for Jesus does. Husbands and wives, here's an application out of the song then. What is the very best way, earthly speaking, to not be enticed to adultery? Earthly speaking. It's to be enraptured with your spouse, isn't it? Right? If you're married, think on your spouse's graces. Give thanks to the Lord for his gift to you. And if you do so, no one will snatch your heart away from them. As you think on 
the excellency of your bride or uh, bridegroom. Well, with that to set the stage, let's turn to our first verse where we read, this is Jesus speaking, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. This is a declaration of Christ's uh, excellency of his person. You remember, he often spoke in this way, didn't he? I am the door. I am the vine. I am the good shepherd. In such declarations, he speaks something about his person. They're not to be taken literally, right? He is not a literal door. He's not a literal vine. He's not a literal rose here. Here he is communicating to his bride his beauty and his purity through this declaration. Why? So that we might be ravished with him and become lovesick for him. To show us that he is not just a token of love, but the substance of love. What do we read? God is love. God is love. And in these two flowers, so pure and fragrant, he is showing it. Now, some think this is the bride who speaks, but that is a bit out of character for her. She never boasts in her beauty. She has said things like, I am black but comely, I am in distress. She does not see anything good in herself in this book. All her affections are stayed upon Christ. We'll see that in a bit. Whatever beauty she possesses comes from him, which is true. Our beauty is derivative of his. But you might ask, and maybe this is something that uh, we, we hear in this culture, right? The, the culture hates the idea that God boasts in himself. Here is Christ boasting. Is it right for Jesus to boast in his own beauty and his purity? Boys and girls, the answer is yes. In fact, it is wrong for him not to boast in himself. It is not narcissistic for the most glorious and radiant being to say he is so. Right? He is perfection. It is righteous for God to declare his own glory. Because if we, the creature, would see him as such, how we would praise him, how we would glorify him, and how we would enjoy him. He is there to be enjoyed, isn't he? He is there to be glorified. And so he declares his own glory. And we ourselves would find great blessings for our own soul if we understood aright that Jesus Christ is glorious. If he did not boast in himself, it would be a great and terrible evil. So here Jesus calls himself the Rose of Sharon. Now, this is even fitting in our culture, but the Jews considered the Rose the King of Flowers. The King of Flowers. And how fitting it is for our captain, our King of Kings, to call himself a Rose then, if he is going to compare himself to a flower. Even today, it is considered the very best of flowers in many quarters. It is also known as... and. Husbands, I suppose in our culture you should know this, it is also called the flower of love, isn't it? As you know, a man will often give roses to a woman they're courting. I remember at our very first meeting, I gave Megan, my wife, a bouquet of 12 yellow roses when we first met. Even the number 12, right, has biblical significance. We won't talk about that right now. But uh, I still give her roses on our, her, our anniversary. Uh, a rose is given as a token of love. It's a tangible, we thought about the sacrament, it's not a sacrament, but it is a tangible object, like the sacrament is, that portrays something that cannot be touched, right? I give it as a token of love, don't I? I give it as a representation of my love. That's what the flower is. But here is Jesus Christ saying, I am the rose of Sharon, meaning he is not just the token of love, he is the substance of love as well. God is love. He is the very excellency of love. Where do you find love? You find the love of God in Jesus Christ. 
And so he intends you to see this by faith. Do you desire pure and steadfast love? Where will you find it? You will only find it in him. He is pure, chaste loveliness. What of this place called Sharon? Well, it was an excellent place, a fruitful place. And I want you to consider Isaiah 35 that connects the rose and Sharon together. Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. So here's the desert about to blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Do you see here how this, this object and this place are tied together? Sharon was a glorious place, an excellent place. But what we find in Isaiah 35, and I'd love to just preach on this, is that when Jesus comes, he turns wastelands, deserts into fruitful places like Sharon, and wildernesses blossom. And that's the beauty here. And in that, we are told, we will see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. The rose of Sharon And where do we find the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God? What has the Bible shown us in 2 Corinthians 4, 6? For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Where do you find the excellency of God? Where do you find the glory of God? It is in the face of Jesus Christ. And where has that excellency gone? Where has that glory gone into our hearts? As you tie this morning in by the Holy Ghost. The rose of Sharon is excellent because the glory of God is revealed in him. And so in Jesus, here is this excellent flower come to us out of an excellent place, heaven, right? To turn wilderness places into Sharon, reviving our dead souls, our feeble churches, and even our nations. That's the work of Christ. Should he not boast in that? Should he not boast in that? Should you not boast in him this week and every week that I have the rose of Sharon who is Jesus Christ? And you think of the rose then and its fragrance. And what does the Bible say? He is fragrant to those who are saved, or he ought to be. Whenever we catch Christ's aroma, right, we are to be drawn towards it. What do we read of his fragrance? For we are unto God a sweet savor, that is, aroma of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life, 2 Corinthians 2. The savor of Jesus Christ is as life to us, isn't it? You know what, boys and girls, sometimes you've maybe had a fresh bouquet of roses. Don't they perfume your house? Don't they have an excellent aroma to them? We even dry roses as a fragrance. Why? Because we love the smell of it. It gives life even to musty places, doesn't it? When, when, you know, before there was the air freshener, right? You'd put fresh flowers in the home to, uh, to dispel the odors of it. But Jesus Christ says he gives his fragrance to us when he activates his graces in us. See, we are the savor of Christ. This week then, as you prepare, here's a simple question. How do I emit the very savor of Christ? How is Christ formed in me? Is my house, right, Uh, parents, is my house diffused with the fragrance of Christ? Or is it the world and sin that perfumes my home? 
if, 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 a, if a brother or sister were to walk into the home, you know, in the old days, right, in the old country, so to speak, uh, there would be the random pastoral visit that would just, the pastor would show up on the door randomly. Uh, is the savor of Christ in this place? Or is this a place that is filled with the world? And you have to ask yourselves this. Do I like the musty odor of the world and my sin, which is meant to be rotten in my nostrils over the perfume of Jesus Christ and the things of God? Pray this week for an increase of your graces and even seek the table next week for grace to have the the excellency of Christ perfume yourself. We have to have a desire, beloved, to be conformed to the lovely image of God's dear Son. You know, if he is that excellent to you, if he is the Rose of Sharon, would you not desire to be like him? Let us bask in his aroma and not the noxious fumes of sin in the world. You know, how it would be if it was said of you and me in our presence that believers would perceive Christ. Right? Isn't that the whole point of 2 Corinthians 2? That in us, others would perceive the fragrance and aroma of Christ. Right? You, you likely have believers. You have certain brothers and sisters where you say, when I'm around this person, I sense Christ. I sense Christ. And I want to be around this person because Christ is formed in them. And that must be what you ought to have for yourself. And, and unbelievers, right? Unbelievers would be uncomfortable around us in a sense, right? His, his aroma, the Bible says, is as death to those who are perishing. Not because you are standoffish, not because you are aloof, not because you say, like the Pharisee, I'm holier than thou, but because your heart and your mind is set entirely upon Jesus Christ. You know, if unbelievers can have a great time with you for hours and days on end, there is something wrong. Because here we are said that to uh, them that are saved, we are a sweet savor to the, to the one, though we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other, the savor of life unto life. To the unbeliever who is not reconciled to God, there's a certain point, right, where they say, well, all this person wants to do is to speak of the Lord and the things of God. It just makes me uncomfortable. And they don't want to sin in this way, and they don't want to speak in this way, and they, they, they're, they're a killjoy, <laughs> right? That's what the unbeliever is essentially going to say about you at some point. You can have a kind of cool kind of friendship, but you cannot be deep because you don't share Christ. Well, Christ also calls himself the lily of the valley, a flower that is white and pure. This signifies his purity, doesn't it? He is holy, undefiled, and separate from sinners is what the Bible says. He is the Lamb of God with no blemish or spot. No sin is ever found in him. What does Revelation 1.14 say when it comes to his whiteness? His hair is white like wool and as white as snow, showing his holiness. Holiness, purity, and radiance. That is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, you know Solomon wrote this text, right? And what did Jesus do when he compared the glory of Solomon? He compared him to the, uh, the lilies of the field, right? Matthew uh, 6.29, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. The glory and excellency of Jesus Christ is shown in the lily of the field, but Christ's glory far excels the glory of Solomon who wrote this text. And that's the point as we look past Solomon in the song, and we look to the one whose glory far excels the glory of Solomon. Here he is, the one who says, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. There is a purity in Jesus Christ that excels any mere man's. 
Perfect righteousness. Perfect holiness. If you're in Christ, this is meant to be attractive to you. This is meant to be attractive to you that as you see the excellency of the holiness and the excellency of Christ, you yourself would be drawn towards what the Bible calls the beauty of holiness. And if you're not, then there's a problem. You ought to be attracted by holiness if you are a believer. And the thing is, right, the bride understands she is not holy in herself. Neither are we. We are sinners. And that is what causes grief in the heart of the believer when they are born again. But also we find glory here when we look on the second verse. He shifts to speak of us, his bride, the true Christian. He says, as the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. First, you have to linger on two words. Beautiful words. My love. My love. He calls the church my love. And when we think of his love and his fragrance, right, we recall Ephesians 5.2, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. You can put all these things together, can't you, Christian? Do we not hear in that verse, though, Jesus Christ saying to the church, you are my love. I have given myself for you because you are my love. I pray, believer, that when you read such texts, right, when you see what Christ has done for you, how he's given himself for you, you would grow in love in return, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you grow lovesick? Why has he given himself for me? He says, because he loved me. And there's nothing in me to love. And yet he calls me my love. And he has given himself for uh, me. And for that reason, why, why, why is the proper response not love in your heart? How can you not love one who has done these things for you? Why would you love the world? Why would you love your sin? What has it done for you when Jesus Christ has given himself? And what does he call us, his love? He says we are as the lily among thorns. You know, if he is altogether lovely, when he looks on us, right, this is the glory of the gospel, he sees us. In us, rather, his likeness, right? He is a lily. We are as the lily. We reflect his radiance and we are given a derived beauty from himself. We are clothed, the Bible says, with the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, given to us as a gift, such that when the Lord looks on you with faith in Jesus, he does not see your corruption. He does not see you as thorns. He sees you as pure lily, white and radiant among thorns. Isn't that the glory of the gospel? Not for anything in ourselves, but because he is the Lord, our righteousness. Romans 4, 5, as you think of this. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. We are ungodly. And yet in himself, he sees us as himself. His faith is counted for righteousness. The very perfection of Jesus is our righteousness. Still in the world, the thorns, still not in heaven, but we will be in heaven because Jesus Christ is the Lord, our righteousness. And we are seen as lilies, even though we have broken all the commandments of God. That if we were seen by Jesus for what we are in our own flesh, what would we be? Would we be a lily among thorns or would we just be thorns? 
In fact, it would be far too kind for him to call us thorns. It would be far too kind for him to even say, you are dung among thorns. Because that's what we are outside of the righteousness of Christ. But we thank God that he justifieth the ungodly. Why? Because we are his love, and the Bible says, from before the foundation of the world. Praise the Lord, as we think on the table. The only reason I can come to the table next week is because I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Are you clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Received how? By faith alone. This is, as better men have said, the very hinge of religion. It is. This is how you know you are right with God. Jesus clothing you with his own righteousness, right? He takes the blood-soaked garments that we are born with naturally, and he takes them off of us, and he puts on his own robe of righteousness, covering us, uh, covering all of our sin with his own righteousness. And what is that righteousness? It's called a glory and splendor greater than Solomon, a glory and splendor greater than the lilies of the field, because it is the very holiness of Christ Jesus our Lord. How we grow in love for him when we know that our husband is our standing before God. You know, in the wedding bond, his estate is mine, and that includes his righteousness. Just as when my wife and I were wed, now in this case, what little I had is hers. In this case, all the riches of Christ are ours in the marriage bond. See, that's the glory of the marriage, right, between Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and us. What is his is ours. And as you saw in the Holy Spirit, uh, it, it, he, he gives us all that is Christ's, including his righteousness. And that's the glory of being married to Jesus Christ, who is the Lord our righteousness. These are matters, right? These are matters of the greatest wonder and praise that staggers the believer's soul. You know, I was talking about, and I made a... Uh, a remark that is very true. What little I have is my wife's, but how much more glorious it is for my wife that all, on the day she believed, all that is Christ's is hers. Reflect on that. Grow in love for the one who has done all this as a gift to you. And before you come to the table, you need to examine yourself. This is the key thing. Do I have Christ's wedding garment? Do I know Christ? Is my faith in Christ alone? If so, this testifies you have that wedding garment and you can come to the table. But as you reflect upon his glory and beauty, not only does he cover our sinfulness in justification as he declares us a lily, but he also conforms us to his glorious image as he infuses grace in us in what is called sanctification, making us as a lily in our graces. We become more like Christ, more conformed to his righteousness, being set apart more and more from the thorns of this world and for himself. So there becomes a distinction, right? Not just uh, uh, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, but in sanctification, our souls are actually becoming more and more pure. Colossians 3.10 says, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, who is Jesus Christ. You know, Boys and girls, if you love Christ, one of the things that you will do is you will want to be like him. There should be a natural sense here. Uh, we talk about, I know boys and girls talk about, and this is sinful too, uh, of having idols in this world, right? 
I want to be like this particular sports player, or I want to be like this particular musician or, or celebrity or something. They, they want to conform themselves. And you'll find them wearing the similar clothes. They'll talk the same way. They'll seek the same kind of activities. But all of us must say of a truth that Jesus Christ is the one I want to be patterned after. And if so, you will grow in holiness. You know, if you say you love Jesus, and you say, you know, the glory of glory is one day I will be like him, what a strange thing it would be if you say you do not want to be like him today. That's something to repent of. It really is. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him, how does the rest of it go? Purifieth himself, even as he is pure. First John 3, 2-3. You know, when we come to the table, we long for the Lord to feed us on his ordinance. Why? So that we might become more purified by his spirit working through it as we feed spiritually on Christ. He feeds us on himself, but we have to come to the table with that anticipation. Do you have that longing? Do you have that desire this week? Only, only if you are sick of love for him will that desire truly move you in that direction. If the words, we shall be like him, Grow you in anticipation of glory. If yours is the hope of glory, 1 John 3, 3 says, purify yourself, even as he is pure. But this requires the grace of the Lord. It does not happen by your flesh, as you heard this morning. Your flesh can perfect nothing. You know, strange thing, I was reflecting on this. The world has a saying. The world understands this saying, you are what you eat, right? Have you heard that before? They mean this, eat healthy things and you will be healthy, eat junk and you will become gross. So nature itself teaches this principle, doesn't it? Whatever you ingest, you become like, you are what you eat. What's the spiritual connection in the Bible? Feed on Christ by his ordinances by faith and you will become spiritually vibrant and you will become more like him. If you ingest the word of God, if you seek the Lord in prayer and you observe the sacraments, you will be more like the one you are to be lovesick for. But you have to go to these things, these ordinances by faith, with desire and with a sense of being lovesick for the image of the one that you ought to be conformed to. Because everyone who has this hope that we shall be like him purifieth himself even as he is pure. This is a week then for you to be checking your heart Do I truly desire Christ? And if so, why do I have no desire to put away the world and my sin and to be like him? Repent where you need to. That takes us to our second heading, desiring his fruit. Also here, the bride is ravished by the beauty of Christ, the rose of Sharon. As Paul did, she has the knowledge then of the excellency of Christ Jesus, her Lord, Philippians 3. And it makes the world, see, this is also the the turn that we have to make. Because sometimes we look at the world and we don't see it the way Jesus Christ sees it here. Jesus Christ says that you are a lily among thorns. You are a lily among thorns, believer. You recall our sermon on the parable of the soils. What did we hear about thorns? They choke out the word of God. What were those thorns? Cares and riches and the pleasures of this life, worldliness summed up. 
Consider 1 Timothy 6.10 and think of thorns. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and listen to this, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. What does worldliness do? It pierces your soul with many sorrows. Also, as you consider being a lily among thorns, the thorns are also the enemies of God. Jesus said what? You are wheat among tares. And that's the picture here as well. In many ways, he is saying then, Oh, my love, you are planted for this time in the midst of sorrow. That's what, that's where you are. Right now, we are, we are lilies among thorns. But in the supper, and this is where we rejoice, right? He reminds you in the broken bread and the poured out wine, what? That all your sorrows have pierced him. What does the, what did the crown of thorns, see that? What's the crown made of? Thorns. What did the crown of thorns which pierced his blessed head show you? They represent that your sorrows have pierced his soul, that he has come to save you from them. You know, boys and girls, never look at a thorn in your garden without meditating on your Savior bleeding. That his precious blood washed away your filth to make you as a lily of the field. In this week then, meditate on your present condition in this world and on your Savior who bled for you. How you should say, I am sick of love, when you consider that your sorrows have pierced him. And seeing her place in this world, it drives the bride to seek shelter and nourishment from Christ. She sees his beauty once again through another illustration. Listen to this in verse 3. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. Do you see this interchange? Between Christ and the bride, he called her my love. She calls him my beloved. We talked about this last time. Do you speak to the Lord this way in prayer? You are my beloved, Jesus, my beloved. She says, in effect, right, I only have eyes for him. In a sense, do you have spiritual eyes for Christ? To love anything more than Jesus, we, we have to come to this point so often because we have to check our heart, especially before the supper. To love anything more than Jesus is idolatry. It is adultery. See, what does she say? Of all the trees in the woods, he alone is to her an apple tree. In verse 3, I sat down under his shadow with great delight and his fruit was sweet to my taste. She delights what? to sit under his shade. See, we have seen the bride in the previous chapter. She is scorched by the heat of the world, wasn't she? She's scorched by the noonday sun and she needs shelter. Where does she go to find shelter? She comes to Christ and she says that he is shelter for me. I sat down under his shadow with great delight. This is a picture of the Lord. He is often seen as our shade and shelter. Isaiah 4, 6, And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge, and for a covert from storm and from rain. How fitting as we consider what is going on around us. That the Lord himself is a covert from storm and from rain, but he also says here, He is a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge. And the Lord becomes for the bride her refuge. What did we sing in Psalm 91? He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. 
Is he the one you trust? This week, you need to ask yourself the question because it is very convicting. It's convicting for myself. When I sense trouble, when there is difficulty, is he the one that we trust in when we need refuge, when the trial or the temptation comes? Is he where we go? Do we find shelter under Christ? What a terrible thing when our soul is weary to not be like the bride here who says, let me sit down under Christ's shadow with great delight. Remember, this text comes in the the scope of her distress. You have to desire communion with the Lord and not just at the table of the Lord. Sometimes people say, well, I want to run to the communion table, but they don't spend any time at all with Christ day by day. And that is making a mockery of the Lord's table, beloved. You can't come to the table this week and say, well, I'll come to the table, but, you know, day by day I have no thought of God. I have no thought of Jesus Christ. I don't delight to spend time with the beloved. You ought to be delighted to spend time with Jesus daily. Do you have any, think of this, as you think of this text, and you think of texts like Isaiah 4, 6, Matthew 6, 6, Jesus says, have a secret place. To come to me. It's as a place where you come under Christ's shadow. I've I've talked to a few people recently, and I didn't realize even how transformative this was for my own life, is to have a physical place where you have communion with God. That's why, that's why Jesus says when you go to the closet or the secret place, he, he anticipates that you actually have a place where you spend meaningful time with the Lord. For me, as an example, it is a a particular chair in my study that I sit upon, and I take up my Bible, and I take up Psalms, and I spend time in prayer with the Lord there with great delight. We are unfit for the Lord's Supper if we are not delighting to be under His shadow. Find consistent daily times with the Lord and and delight to do it, right? There's something we need to repent of if spending time with Christ is not our delight. There's something there that is not right. We don't love him as we ought. If he was our beloved, we would run to the secret place. And when we have need of his shelter, we would run to the closet. And we would say, let me go, as the bride does here. You know, the sacrament is not magic, friends. Some weekly communion people give you that impression. But the sacrament can actually harm us spiritually if we are not in the habit of communing with the Lord. How can we have communion with the Lord in such a heightened way when we won't have communion with the Lord daily? You must desire communion with the Lord as the bride does. If you saw Christ as he is, you would long for his shade. She knows that he not only gives shade in the wilderness, but listen to this. She receives his fruit. In verse 4 she says, his fruit was sweet to my taste. What's this fruit? It's his ordinances. Think of it. This is how the ordinances are described in the Bible. In verse 4, his fruit was sweet to my taste. Doesn't the Bible say in Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are thy words unto my taste? Yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. See, no matter how sweet physical food is, your desserts, boys and girls, the word of God is sweeter than all of that to those who desire Christ. The word is sweet. In the word, you taste the gall and bitterness of your sin, but also the good graciousness of God. 1 Peter 2, 2-3, as newborn babes, listen to this word, desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If so be ye, ye have tasted what? That the Lord is gracious. 
Do you see this tasting idea, right? We taste the sweetness of the Lord through His ordinances. This is what, this is why, sad to say, sorry to say, so many people, they, they have some sort of almost perverted view of this text here. But the Bible shows that the fruit of Christ is sweet to your taste in His ordinances. He is so sweet to us. And this is what the bride desires for herself. What do you sing in the 34th Psalm? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. To her, his fruit is sweet. In him alone, she finds nourishment. Christ alone can fill your soul. That is what you and I must recognize this week. right? If his ordinances aren't sweet to my taste, then there's something off in my soul. His word must be sweeter than honey. Anticipating his, his ordinances should be sweet to me. I should anticipate the preaching of the word. Let me hear the voice of my beloved. This is going to be sweet to me. The desire to be under his shade should be then a desire to spend time in prayer and communication with him. But you have to do it out of faith and love and hope after fervently meditating on Christ. You need to repent of idolatry and sin to put away then, right? What we have to do this week is measure our affections for everything. What do we have affections for in this world? And where does it line up with our affections for Jesus? We have to put we have to put down, so to speak, anything that is asserting itself over Jesus. I will just say, think about your day, right? Think about your day, and you say, what is it that makes me groan when I think about going to the Lord in prayer? What is it that makes me say, you know what, I would rather do that thing than to go and spend time under the shade of Christ? That is something that you need to put in its proper place, beloved, even good things. You can't neglect your duties that you have, obviously. You have to go to work. You have to do the things that God calls you to. But when it comes to all the other things in your life, where does the Lord fit in your life? I hope you would say, I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, if you believe, if you have been saved. If you say that, why don't you live your life that way? That I have tasted the sweetness of the Lord, and I want that every day. I want it every day. You shouldn't just want it quarterly. You should want it every day of your life. Desire the sincere milk of the Lord. Put away the thorns of the world this week, and not just for this week, but forever. Seek the sweet fruit of Christ and pant for him. She says to Christ, this is a prayer, beloved. Stay me with flagons and comfort me with apples. The word stay means sustain. It's a prayer. And you might turn it this way then, saying to Christ, sustain me through thy ordinances, O Lord. Comfort me, right? Doesn't he say that she say this? Comfort me with apples. Comfort me with your appointed ordinances. Show me tokens of thy love and grace. Do you pray in this manner? You need to prepare for the ordinances of God with fervent prayer. You know, these ordinances, they're not mechanical, right? What are, uh, This morning, the baptism, it, it really means nothing if our, if our sister did not have faith in the ordinance working, really faith in the Lord working through this ordinance. It's the same thing with the Word of God. If I don't have faith that the Lord works through the Word, it's not a mechanical thing, just reading some words on the Bible. Don't do anything unless I see, as the 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 um, the, the bride will say in verse 8, next time, the voice of my beloved, that I see Christ here. That's when. That's when the ordinances have power. 
And so you need to go to the Lord with faith in the Lord and in prayer. Are you lacking in this kind of prayer when it comes to the ordinances of God? Sustain me, comfort me through the ordinances, grow me, use these things. Do you pray for the blessing of Christ? If you don't, I will just say that that is often a sign of practical atheism. Practical atheism. Or it's superstition. Thinking that this word will just do something without faith. You must come to the word with faith, believer. Ask your soul, will you, O my soul, be sustained and comforted as you walk through the heat of the sun and the thorns of this world without sitting under the shade of Christ and using his ordinances? What's the answer to you? Will you be sustained? Can you be sustained without coming to Christ and seeking his ordinances? Well, those flagons of wine, and I will try to be brief in this last couple of points here. These flagons of wine are found somewhere specific in what is called the banqueting house. And I might pick up this next time. In verse 4, the bride says of Christ, He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. But that you might grow lovesick for Christ's table, I suppose I will treat this briefly. Let's consider it briefly. Banqueting house is in Hebrew the house of wine or the house of feasting. Think of the supper in that. This is a place of refreshment and refuge to her, right? She's in the heat of the sun. And here's the banqueting house, this place of refuge among thorns. This is the place where she receives Christ's ordinances in a public and heightened way, right? This is a house, uh, a house of wine. It's the place where we receive the public ordinances, where we receive preaching and the sacraments. It's a house of feasting together and not just alone. It's a, it's a public place for the bride of Christ. And this is what the church's meetings must be to us like today, right? This meeting and the one this morning must be a banqueting house to us, a feasting on Christ. See, we have to come to the public uh, meetings with faith like that. This is a place to feast on Christ. You know, the secret place is good under the shade of Christ, but the public meeting place is better than that. And that's when she reminds herself of this, right? She is speaking here. His banner over me is love. And that's where your heart must be this week. His banner over me is love as you come to the Lord's table. Is this not a worthy thought then to end our meditation on? The word signifying banner is a military banner. It's a military banner, a banner of war. But it's a banner of war. Why? For the sake of love, isn't it? He promised Jesus to us in this way in Isaiah eleven twelve. Listen to this, because it uses this language. And he shall set up an ensign that is a banner for the nations and shall assemble who? The outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. We are the outcasts, aren't we? We are the outcasts. We are the outcasts of the world. And Jesus has conquered us together under his banner of war, which is a banner of love. We know Jesus himself is this banner. Jesus himself is God's banner of love. Isaiah 11, verse 10, just a couple of verses before that. In that day there shall be a root of Jesse. Who is the root of Jesse? Jesus Christ, which shall stand for an ensign or a banner of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Here is the rest of Jesus Christ. He is our banner of love. So he himself is the banner of love, just as he is the rose of Sharon. 
In Jesus Christ, then, we find everything. And what has our beloved Jesus done for us? What has he conquered out of love? Has he not conquered for you, believer? That he Has he not conquered death? Has he not conquered the grave? Has he not conquered our sin? To give us, as uh, the Bible promised, that his rest shall be glorious. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth the, the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory. How can the bride of Christ look at his banner then and not say his banner over me is love? And uh, who has Christ conquered first and foremost? He has conquered me, the believer, out of love. See, I am wayward. And out of love, he has conquered me, hasn't he? We even speak about this way, right? Even in earthly relationships, you know, he conquered her, right? Which is a, a silly thing to say in a lot of ways, and sometimes even a sinful thing. But Jesus Christ has truly conquered us. He has conquered our wayward hearts, our stony hearts. I was going wayward, a sheep gone astray, and my beloved has conquered my heart. Your heart is often wayward, believer. And in every place it is wayward this week. In every place where Jesus Christ might be saying to you now, you have left your first love. You need to ask your beloved Jesus Christ, the conqueror, to subjugate your heart to, your, to himself. Well, beloved, I couldn't treat this text, uh, all of it tonight, but what I would just exhort you in conclusion is grow lovesick for Christ. Long for his fruit as sweet to your, your taste. When you need refuge this week, go to Jesus Long for his ordinances, not just the supper, but all of them this week, and put away your waywardness. See himself as the shelter of your soul. When you are anxious and filled with cares this week, what are you going to do? Let me seek his shade. Let me seek his shade. I sat down under his shadow with great delight. Oh, what a thing it is when you have the anxieties and cares, when your sin is plaguing your conscience to say, let me sit down under his shade with great delight. Great delight that conquers, conquers your anxiety and your cares and, and all the things that ail you. Go to Jesus Christ. What did he say in Psalm 37, 4? Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. You know, we get this so backwards, right? We delight and we would desire all kinds of other things, but we don't desire the Lord. He says, desire the Lord. And he will give you the desires of thine heart. And if you desire the Lord then, what is that, what is it that he is going to give you? He is going to give you himself. And that is what you are going to find at the table. Jesus Christ saying, what? This is my body which is broken for you. I give myself to you. If you delight in him, he is giving himself to you in the sacrament. When he says, this is my blood which is shed or poured out for you. That is Jesus Christ giving himself. So you cannot come to the table and receive Christ unless you delight in him. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Come by faith in that promise. Come desiring Christ, and come ready to receive him at the table. Amen. Until then, please rise for prayer if able. Our Father and our God.
forgive us, O Lord, for breaking the greatest commandment. Father, our love is often so so lukewarm. And we know that Jesus Christ finds that a despicable thing. Father, help us to be hot for Christ. Help us to truly be in love with him. He has done all things for us. He has come down to this earth to be humiliated for the sake of his bride. And yet, Father, we find that our love for him is so cool. And he says to us so many times, he has said to me, I know you have left your first love. And so, Father, all of us confess this great guilt. Would you remedy it this week? Would you cause us to love Jesus Christ, Son of God, above all all others? Father, you have given him to us out of love. Help us to return that love to him. And in so doing, Father, give us the desire of our heart. We say we desire Christ. Give us Christ in the sacrament as we prepare to meet him. We pray this in his name. Amen.